Welcome to the Rockcast. My name is Monty Colvin and I'm a straight Caucasian male. But today I'm choosing to identify as a black pregnant woman. Say what? I realize that doesn't make any sense, but this is 2022. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have even thought it was possible for me to get pregnant. But since I'm a gullible idiot who believes anything that I'm told, well, I guess anything's possible. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, so for the next 50 minutes to an hour, just sit back and take your mind off how incredibly insane the world is right now. And to do that, I'm going to start out by answering a message I got from Dave in St. Louis. If you recall, on the last episode, I played a clip from the Eddie Trunk Show. And one of his listeners asked Eddie if he'd ever heard of Galactic Cowboys. Well, of course, Eddie didn't know much about Galactic Cowboys, but he did know a whole lot about King's X. Well, it turns out that listener also listens to my show, and his name is Dave in St. Louis. And Dave's question for me was, Monty, have you ever heard of King's X? Hmm, well, yes, I have, Dave, but instead of answering your question, I'm just going to talk about myself. Ha! God, are you predictable? Actually, Dave didn't ask me that at all. I just made that up. However, he did have a couple of questions for me, and one of them was, Hey, Monty, how's it going? Ah, well, thanks for asking, Dave. Uh, You know, I'm hanging in there. As you know, I'm a full-time artist, and with the economy the way it is right now, uh, things are a little slow, I'll be honest. But regardless, I'm working my ass off and I'm churning out the paintings and the prints and the refrigerator magnets. And I'm getting ready to do an art festival in Denver at the end of October. But until then, uh, things have been a little tight here lately. And I know there's probably some people who think I'm a rich rock star. And you're saying, oh yeah, but uh, you were on Geffen and Metal Blade and you toured with Anthrax and uh, Dream Theater. And you were in that movie Airheads, Uh, you gotta be loaded. Uh, Well, no. And I kind of wish I had a cool excuse. Like the time I heard Steven Tyler say, yeah, I've made millions, but it all went up my nose. But I don't even have that. I mean, there was a brief time in the early 90s where it looked like we were gonna make a lot of money. But when your manager and producer take a big hunk of it, and then you spend hundreds of thousands making the albums and the videos, and you gotta pay lawyers and accountants, and you're paying for t-shirts and equipment, and you finally wake up one day and find out uh, it's all gone. Yeah, you're broke. But don't get me wrong, I really appreciate a lot of the cool things I got to do, but it did not make me rich. And sometimes I've just got to laugh. Like the other day when I got this royalty check in the mail and it was for six cents. And my girlfriend Alex said, whoa, what are you going to do with that? And I said, "Uh, maybe we should just frame it. A colossally awful idea. And this happened literally a week ago. I was on my computer and I've never Googled myself because I just didn't want to see it. But I did want to find out if there was anything out there about my video show, Art That Rocks. And so I put in Art That Rocks, Monty Colvin. But one of the first things that popped up was Monty Colvin net worth. And I thought, oh, this could be interesting. I wonder what I am worth. And so I read it and it says Monty Colvin, musician. And I say, well, yeah, that must be me. And in 2021, it says that I was worth $850,000. And I thought, wow, I did not know that. But then there was a more recent one from 2022. And it says, Monty Colvin is an actor known for airheads. But this is the best part. Monty Colvin's net worth, 
14 million dollars. Oh, oh my god. god. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, but you know, it's on the internet, so it must be true. Uh-huh. So let me just say it again. I'm worth 14 million dollars. And before I go on, let me just insert this sound clip. Yeah, so anyway, uh, despite what the internet might want you to believe, not all musicians are wealthy. Not even the ones who did tours and were on major labels and uh, did videos for MTV. And it's funny because I still have people almost every week say, Galactic Cowboys should make another album. And I think, you know, I would love to, even if nobody bought it. It would be a blast to make another album. And I wouldn't mind doing another tour, even if nobody came. But all that stuff takes money, and right now I'm just trying to figure out how to pay my insurance and car payment. Because the cold hard fact of it all is that it's just really hard to support yourself as a musician or an artist. But it's what I do and I keep working at it. But thanks to a couple of people, I was able to pay my bills in July. And the first one I want to give a shout out to was Pete in New York who bought my uh, portrait of Pete Townsend. And I almost didn't want to sell that because I love Pete Townsend and the painting turned out really cool, but I did it. And thank you Pete Castelli for buying it. And the second one was my buddy Jeff Moore in Mississippi bought a painting off me and gave it to his daughter Erin. And that one was of Tom Petty, and uh, it proved once again that paintings make great gifts. Wow, they do! Okay, let's see what else. Oh, well, my girlfriend Alex got some vacation time. And she really deserved it and needed it because she's a manager at a grocery store. And I don't think I ever knew anybody before her who did that for a living. But I have just been amazed at the insane shit that she tells me that goes on at a grocery store every day. Like apparently homeless people will just take up residency in the bathrooms and she'll tell them sorry but you've got to go and they'll leave behind syringes and empty bottles and it's just kind of a bummer. And if you were to ask me how much theft goes on in a grocery store in the course of say like a week. And I would have said, oh, maybe once, twice a week, somebody will try to walk out of there with something. But no, it turns out that there's people just every day of the year. And they're trying to steal everything from candy bars to sandwiches to a six-pack of beer. And they'll just stick it in their coat and try to walk out the front door. And so Alex is always having to deal with that, so she was really looking forward to some time off. And her daughter just had a baby, so we decided to take a trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico to see them. And it's only about a six hour drive, not too bad, but we still had to have some tunage. Because you can't just sit there in silence or God forbid talk to each other. So Alex broke out the Apple Music and uh, the playlist on the way was as follows. We started out with some early Ramones. I played some Wild Hearts and Famous Last Words. Alex chose some Live at Budokan by Cheap Trick. And I followed that up with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son by Iron Maiden and finished it off with more Ramones. So that got us there safely. But when we got to Santa Fe, I got to thinking, you know, I don't think I've ever been here. In all my years of touring, I don't think we ever played Santa Fe. So it was kind of cool to see the place. There's a lot of adobe, a lot of uh, Spanish and Indian art. And we also went into this old Catholic cathedral. And of course, those places are just amazing to see. And when they're not having services in there, they just open them up to the public uh, and you can just walk through. And so we did, but uh, before we left, Alex did something really sweet. She said, you want to just sit down and pray? And I was like, okay, sure. And so we sit down and Alex leans over and quietly says, uh, God, please help our finances and please help Monty to sell some paintings. And then she paused for a couple of seconds and I heard her say, and one more thing, God, please help the Colorado Avalanche to re-sign Nazem Kadri. Amen. So even though we were only in Santa Fe for about 24 hours, we had a good time. 
And on the way back, the playlist included more Ramones, Star Set, and Alex even wanted to hear some Galactic Cowboys. So I played at the end of the day. Uh, I don't know who that is. Now, the other thing we did on Alex's vacation was uh, Alex months ago bought tickets to go see Anthrax. So two days after we got back from New Mexico, we drove to Denver to see Anthrax on their 40th anniversary tour. They were playing at a place I'd never been before. It was called the Fillmore. And pretty much everything was general admission. And we got there pretty early and we were able just to walk right up to the front of the stage, which was really cool because Alex is kind of tiny and uh, she was still able to just lean over the rail and see everything perfectly. And the opening band of the night was Hatebreed. And I've seen them three or four times. And it's funny because having a name like Hatebreed, uh, they are just really fun. Jamie Josta is a great front man. He seems like he'd be a good guy if you ever met him. And for the 45 minutes or however long they played, they just pounded my face in. After Hatebreed was done, it was time for Black Label Society. And I think this was about the fourth time I've seen BLS, but uh, let's face it. They may have a band name, but you're there to see Zach Wilde. And besides being a phenomenal guitar player and musician, he's just got an amazing stage presence. He comes out there and he's got hair down to his waist and the big huge beard. He looks like a mountain man and he's also wearing a kilt. Yeah. And I have no idea what the kilt is all about, but are you going to say something to Zach Wilde about it? I don't think so. You're just like, yeah, Zach, uh, that is cool. The other thing I wouldn't say to Zach Wilde is, uh, yeah, Zach, your songs aren't great. I might think that to myself, uh, which I do. But there's no way I would tell him that. But like I said, Zach is great, and so is his band. And at one point, Zach goes over and plays piano, and they do this tribute to Dimebag. And then he gets back on guitar, and at one point, he goes over and stands on top of the piano and just starts shredding. And then the other guitar player in his band starts trading off solos with Zach. And then Zach takes the guitar and he starts playing behind his head like Hendrix or something. And then the other guitar player starts playing behind his head. And I thought this was really cool, but you know, at this point, uh, we've all seen somebody play behind their head. But then they started doing something I don't think I've ever seen. They weren't just noodling or making noise behind their head. They started doing harmonies. And they're just ripping out these blazing solos note for note. And by the end of it, I was like, that was really good. That was a good show. Even if they don't have great songs. You're just being nitpicky. Next, it was time for the headliner, The Mighty Anthrax. And I think it'd been about 10 years since I'd seen them, maybe longer. They played a side stage at a Mayhem Festival. But they're back to headlining again where they belong. They put on a great show. So much energy. And I know they're part of the big four and they're thrash metal, but uh, to me, they've always just been fun. And of course, back in the mid-90s, we opened for them in Europe. And their fans were really nice to us. Uh, they accepted us and just listened to our music and rocked out. And that's kind of the way this was. There was a pit and all that, but uh, people were really cool. They did a lot of songs from Among the Living, which is still my favorite album. They did stuff like I Am The Law, Caught In A Mosh, and of course my favorite Anthrax song, Indians. But I've got to admit, it was a little weird for me. Just standing there watching them, it brought back a lot of memories, a lot of good memories. And I gotta say, I miss it. I miss playing, I miss being on stage, but at the same time, I just love doing my artwork. 
And that would lead me to another question that I got on Facebook from Christopher Harold. And Christopher says, hey, Monty, which is your first love, music or painting? Well, Christian, that's a good question to answer right here on the Rockcast. But it's a difficult one to answer because I love them both. I've actually been painting longer than I've been playing, but they've both been artistic outlets for me, and I've always just tried to be as good at both of them as I can. I've also done both of them professionally, but as I alluded to earlier, they're both very difficult professions to get into. Or should I say, they're both hard to make a living at. But I know most people know me as a musician, and I still get messages and email from people uh, who are in bands now. And they're recording their demos and songs on uh, their computers, or they're going into studios and spending a lot of money to do that. And they're putting those songs on YouTube or uh, Bandcamp. And they want to live the dream, which I totally understand, but they're just not quite getting there. So I thought I'd give my two cents or a little advice to any musicians out there who are in that situation. Keeping in mind that the music industry has changed a whole lot over the years, but the principles of how to be a good band or uh, get people to notice you are still kind of the same. And the first thing I would suggest is that you have really great songs. Because if you don't have great songs, you really don't have anything. So before you start handing out demos or asking people to buy your music on the internet, make sure you've worked on those songs a lot. The next thing is practice a lot. Don't think that you're just going to get together once a week and end up in Rolling Stone magazine. If you're just wanting to get together with the guys and jam once in a while, that's fine. Have fun with it. But if your dream is to be on tour or get signed or anything like that, you're going to have to put a lot of work into it. The next thing I would suggest is playing as many gigs as often as you can. It's one thing to play in your practice room, but the more you get out and play the clubs, play in front of people, the tighter you will get. When I was in The Awful Truth, we played almost every week at this place called The Axiom in Houston. It was a punk club and it was kind of a dump. Some weeks it would be packed, other weeks there'd be like three people. We also did this one show where we opened for this female singer named Jane Sibbery. And her music was really mellow and I don't even know why we were on that bill. And I'm not making this up, but to this day, I still think that 90% of her audience was comprised of lesbians. And they just looked at us like, what the hell is this? But no matter where we played or who was there, we played full out like we were in Madison Square Garden. And when we eventually went in the studio, we were ready. We were prepared. And that's one of the reasons why that album sounds so good. We got good playing live. And now here's some advice that I'll throw in for no charge. You can take it or leave it. But if you're a band and you want to get noticed and you want people to remember you, when you play live, give it some effort. Put on a show. Develop some stage presence. I know there's bands like Dream Theater and King's X. They just stand there and people still worship them. But if it's me and I go see a band, I want to see some energy. Something else along those lines, try to have a look. You don't have to look like you're in Motley Crue, but you don't want to look like you just left work from your accounting firm. Along those same lines, when you're looking for somebody to be in your band, try to find guys who look like they're supposed to be in a band. When I was putting together Galactic Cowboys, I handpicked Dane and Ben. Part of it was that they were really talented and they got it and they could play and sing. But another part of it is that they just looked really cool. Ultimately, image isn't the most important part, but it's pretty important most of the time. Another thing I'll throw out there to musicians who want to quote, make it, be willing to change locations. In order to get with the right people and the right situation, it may require you moving to another city or another state. Be willing to do that. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was living in this little bitty town called Nevada, Missouri. 
I'd just gotten married and I was working at a sporting goods store selling shoes. When I'd get off work, I'd go home and I'd write songs and I'd record them on my little four track. But basically, I was going nowhere. Well, one day I got a call from this guy that was a recording artist in Houston and he said he needed a bass player to go on tour with him. Well, I didn't even have to think about it. We moved to Houston. Well, I only played with that guy for one year, but from that, that led to the awful truth, and from that, that turned into Galactic Cowboys. And I ended up having a long career. But had I stayed in that little town in Missouri, I'm pretty sure nothing would have ever happened. You're damn right. Something else that's relatively important is get a good band name. Try to find something that's memorable and hopefully rolls off the tongue. You know, something like uh, The Police, The Cult, Kajagoogoo. No! But whatever you do, don't name yourself Galactic Cowboys. Or even worse, Galactic Cowboy Orchestra. Who? Yeah, have you heard about them? That's really original. Apparently they've never heard of something called Google, or they just don't care. Probably not. And finally, my biggest piece of advice to any musician or band or uh, anybody who has a dream of making it in the music industry. To those people, I just want to say, don't do it. Give up now. The odds of you getting signed or being successful are astronomical. And honestly, you've got nothing but heartache and disappointment ahead of you. Oh, that is so nice. All right, I got the same question from two different guys. The first one was from Skip Strong, and the other one was from Garrett McCall. And they both asked me what my thoughts were on the Pantera reunion, reunion being in air quotes. Now, if for some reason you haven't heard yet, uh, Rex and Phil from Pantera have gotten Charlie Benante from Anthrax and uh, Zach Wild to join Pantera for a tour next year, I guess. But sure, I'd be glad to give you my thoughts, but first, I'll have to give you my Eddie Trunk take and tell you my history with Pantera and how I used to know those guys. Don't do that. So I guess it was back in 89 or 90. Uh, I used to go see Pantera all the time at this club in Houston called Backstage. And it was a really cool metal club. I saw Dream Theater there. I saw Faith No More, Flotsam and Jetsam, uh, Life, Sex and Death, Lynch Mob. And I even played there when I was in Galactic Cowboys several times. But Pantera, being from Dallas, would come down to Houston all the time and play it backstage. And it was right as they were getting signed that I started seeing them. And they were doing all that stuff from Cowboys from Hell, and I just thought they were incredible. And it was usually me, Alan Doss from Galactic, and Doug Pennick from King's X. And we'd go there on a Saturday night and watch the show and have our minds blown. And we'd either go backstage with them after the show or uh, we'd all go over to Doug Pennick's house and chill out. And one night we even played them the demos from our first album and they were just loving it. That's a hell of a story! But they were just really cool guys and I had no idea at the time that they were going to be playing arenas. But uh, as we all know now, they did. And we eventually ended up with the same management company as Pantera, but it uh, didn't work out quite as well for us. But that's neither here nor there. The sad truth is, is that Dimebag and Vinny are no longer with us. And I don't think most people ever thought that uh, there would ever be a reunion of Pantera, mainly because Dime and Vinny wouldn't be there. I mean, how could you have something and call it Pantera without them in it? But lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, we hear the news that, yes, they're getting together with Zach and Charlie and going to do a tour, I guess. I am completely unaware of this. Now, how do I feel about that? Well, I guess I'm like everybody else. No, it's not Pantera. It's half of Pantera with a couple of amazing musicians. The real question is, would I want to see that? And the answer is, of course. I don't care what they call it. 
Zach Wilde playing Pantera songs with Phil on vocals and Charlie on drums. Are you kidding me? That's going to kick ass. I would love to go see that. I just hope tickets aren't like 500 bucks. If that's the case, I'll have to wait and watch it on YouTube. The whole thing stinks. Speaking of YouTube, it's time now for another segment of What's on TV. This is a lot about nothing. I'll be honest, I love YouTube. I watch it all the time, pretty much every day. But at the same time, I hate YouTube. The constant commercial interruptions just drive me crazy, and for that, I despise YouTube. The other day, I was watching a video that I think was about 30 minutes long, and I started counting, and they interrupted eight or nine times, and the total was 18 commercials. But YouTube, you can kiss my ass, because I'm not paying you so you can stop harassing me with the commercials. So I will keep watching, but why? Well, because I like to learn, and I learn all kinds of stuff on YouTube. So what have I learned lately? Well, I watched a video of Pat Benatar live, and it turns out she can still sing really well. And I think her husband, Neil Gerardo, may be one of the most underrated guitar players ever. He's not talked a lot about, but uh, man, his solos were always just so creative, melodic, and memorable. I also like watching videos by Rick Beato. He's a music producer and teacher and the guy really knows his stuff. And the other day he broke down and analyzed the guitar solos off of Frampton Comes Alive. And a lot of those solos were just really jazz based and really brilliant. And it was cool to me because Frampton Comes Alive was one of the things that made me start playing. And I've always loved Peter Frampton, but a lot of people took a lot of shots at him, made him out to be a pretty boy rock star, and didn't give him a lot of respect. Like, when I was in high school, I remember these guys were going, Peter Frampton's not a guitar player. Ted Nugent's a guitar player. And I loved Ted Nugent too back then, but you know, uh, hearing what Rick Beato had to say, uh, now I know those guys were full of crap. Something else I learned from watching YouTube is that my cousin D.D. Ramon was kind of a freak. No kidding. Yeah, I watched a documentary about D.D. Ramon and wow, that guy did a lot of drugs. And it made me glad that I never did. But I'm still inspired when I see old footage of the Ramones playing live, especially back in the late 70s. They just had some raw slamming energy. What the hell were they thinking? Another show I like on YouTube is called Sea of Tranquility, and it has nothing to do with the song by Galactic Cowboys called Sea of Tranquility. It's just a video podcast where they have discussions about hard rock and metal. And a couple of frequent guests on there are also friends of mine. Shout out to Mr. Butch Jones and Martin Popoff, who is an author and a great writer. And uh, he's on there all the time, and I learn a whole lot from both of those guys. And if you're into hockey, specifically the Colorado Avalanche, check out Locked On Colorado Avalanche. It's a podcast. One of the hosts is Shaggy Von Doom. And he's a good guy, totally knows his crap about hockey, and he's also a metalhead. So shout out to Shaggy. <laughs> My guy, I'm so happy, Scoob. Now moving on to other crap that I've been watching. Well, it's summer, so that means Big Brother. 
I've been watching this for over 20 years, I think. But each year it's gotten more and more woke and more and more terrible. And this season it's so bad that Alex watched the first episode with me and she just said, I'm done. And so I have to watch it by myself, but I'll agree with her, it does suck. I mean, it's no different from most seasons where I end up hating everyone in the house. But this season even seems more scripted than ever. Like, it almost seems like the contestants are reading lines that have been written for them. So if you've never watched that show, please don't start now. I mean, it just, it's, it's, it sucks. Okay, here's something that Alex did agree to watch with me. It's called Married at First Sight. We've been watching it on Netflix, but I think it's been on Lifetime Network or something like that for years. And here's the premise, and now get this. They take some single people who I will refer to as idiots, and they agree to get married to a total stranger. They've never met this person, but they meet at the altar and they get married, and then it's off to the honeymoon. And the concept for this was so bizarre that I just had to give it a chance. And you know, I actually find it quite interesting. They follow these people, I mean idiots, around for eight weeks and they film everything they do and they move in together and start trying to live as a married couple. And strangely enough, some of the couples actually have problems. Shocking! Yeah, who could have imagined? I mean, it's all going great at first. They have this wedding ceremony and everybody's happy. And they send them on a honeymoon vacation to some tropical island. But gradually, little things start popping up that they don't like about each other. And I could have told them, you know, you never really know somebody until you live with them for a while. But they don't know this stuff because most of them are like 26 to 32 and they've never been married. But I'll tell you why I like this show. Because it reminds me of when I first got married for the first time. It was back in the 80s, I was 26 myself, and I realize now that I too was an idiot back then. I thought I was ready to be married, but boy was I wrong. I didn't know the first thing about living with a woman, nor did I understand women at all. And we argued and argued over ridiculous stuff and we continued to argue for the next 25 years until we finally had mercy on each other and just called it quits. Unlike the people on this show who can get out of the marriage after eight weeks, we just continued to stick it out for a long time. And when I look back on it all, I realize now how selfish and immature I was. And that's what I see in a lot of these people on this show. They've been single and they think they want to get married, but they're not ready to give up their independence. They still want to do everything they want to do when they want to do it. They don't want to change anything about themselves or their lifestyle. And they just expect the other person to adapt to them. And I just love some of the arguments they get into on this show. Like there was this black couple and the guy says to his new wife, we need to talk about everything. And she says, like what? And he says, uh, like if you decide to cut all your hair off. And she says, I don't need your permission to cut my hair. And he says, well, if you come walking in here someday with a bald head, I might not be attracted to you no more. That's a very, very good point. Anyway, Married at First Sight. Yes, it's a really dumb reality show in a lot of ways. But it also made me think and realize that, yes, I've been a failure at marriage and relationships over the years. But with each failure, I grew and learned a lot. And if I could go back and do some things over, I would do them a lot differently now. I think I'd be a lot more understanding and a lot less selfish. But all I can do now is apply what I've learned to my new relationship and just be the best money I can be. And to be the best Monty I can be, I will start by never referring to myself in the third person ever again. Because I hate when people do that. It sounds arrogant and douchey. This guy's a complete a-hole. And something else I watched on Netflix was this documentary about Woodstock 99. It's called Trainwreck. 
Seems hard to believe it's been over 20 years since that took place, and I remember seeing highlights and footage from it, but this was a little more in depth, and you got to see what was going on behind the scenes and uh, find out why it was such a debacle. Now, I know that HBO also did a documentary about the same event, uh, I think it was about a year ago. And I didn't see that one, but I heard they tried to make it all woke. And they were trying to blame it all on toxic masculinity and racism and all that crap. But this one on Netflix, they tried to make it a little more fair, and they just blamed everybody. They blamed the organizers, the promoters, the bands, the people that went to it, the vendors, everyone. And in some ways, I would probably agree. What looked like it was just going to be a big festival with a bunch of bands and a lot of fun ended on day three with a big riot. People got hurt, people got raped, and they will probably never have another Woodstock ever again. And all that's bad, but the cynical part of me says, uh, you know, uh, what did you expect? You sold 250,000 tickets to people in their teens and 20s. You put them on asphalt on a 100 degree day, took away their water as they were coming into the place. You hired Limp Biscuit, who you knew were going to play a song called Break Stuff. And then you were shocked when people tore the place apart. But I know it was all supposed to be about peace and love, just like back in 69 at the first Woodstock. Except at Woodstock 99, people were having sex and doing drugs, kind of like they were in 69. Don't! I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems like they glamorized the first Woodstock a little too much. Did those dirty hippies back then really care that much about anti-war and peace and love? Or did they really just go to Woodstock to drop some acid and watch somebody like Country Joe and the Fish? But don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to excuse the douchebags and morons who tried to burn down Woodstock 99. I used to see the same kind of entitled little assholes at the Warp Tour when I used to go to that every year. Only difference was there was a lot less of them at Warp Tour than there was at Woodstock. But I suppose anytime you get a lot of angry people together, who knows what's going to happen. Especially when there's no security, no police, and you just tell people, hey, do whatever you want. Hmm, angry mobs of people destroying property with seemingly no consequences. Where have I heard of something like this happening before? Sounds familiar. Oh yeah, the George Floyd riots. Angry mobs burning down buildings and tearing down things. You know, I think if CNN would have done this documentary, they would have probably said something like, uh, this was mostly a peaceful concert. CNN sucks. But hey, I don't want to get too political. This was back in 99 when everything was great. Clinton was the president and he was getting a BJ in the Oval Office and he was saying stuff like, I did not inhale. Who knew that kids would want to do drugs and be debaucherous at a festival? So did I like this three-part docu-series? Yeah, some of it was pretty good. My favorite part was when they were talking about how MTV was there covering everything. And while most of the acts at this festival were really heavy, like uh, Megadeth, Metallica, Korn, while at that very same time, MTV was all about the TRL, NSYNC, and Britney Spears. And at one point in the documentary, they have some footage of this kid walking up to somebody like Kurt Loder. And the kid tells him, hey, I want you to know I hate the Backstreet Boys. And Loder goes, oh, okay, nice to meet you. And the kid goes, yeah, I hate the Backstreet Boys. I'm sick of that stuff. And he walks off. And I just love that. It filled me with glee. And there was another shot of where uh, Carson Daly's standing there talking on the mic and people just start throwing stuff at them because they're from MTV. And I just thought, you know, if I would have been there, I would have thrown stuff too because I hate MTV and they deserve that. Pure evil. So Trainwreck on Netflix, uh, pretty good, but uh, at times disturbing. I got to warn you. You'll have to sit through some footage of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which is bad enough. But there's also a couple of shots of uh, Flea's hairy penis, which pretty much scarred me for life. I am horrified. 
All right, time now for Monty's random thoughts. This is where I randomly talk about whatever. And my first random thought is about comments on Facebook. For some reason, people aren't as ballsy on Instagram. But man, on Facebook, it seems like they feel like they can say whatever they want to me. And most of it's really nice. I can't complain too much. I've got a lot of nice people on my friends list. But then you'll get these guys, and it's almost always dudes. They want to be a smart ass, or they think they're being funny. I don't know. But they'll make comments that just make me go, Really? You really needed to tell me that? So today, I just kind of wanted to throw this out there. When you're on Facebook and you're scrolling along and you run onto a post, uh, you don't have to comment. It's not a requirement. You can just read it, like it, or just skim on by. For example, let's say I post a picture of one of my paintings or drawings. The reason I put those up is because I'd like to sell those things. It's not so you can critique them or uh, give me advice on how to do them. Or another example is, uh, let's say I put up a painting of Marilyn Manson. It's not really necessary for you to tell me that you don't like Marilyn Manson or that you hate his music. Because, you know, it's just a painting and I obviously didn't do it for you. So feel free not to say anything, uh, which is kind of what I do. If I see something on Facebook that I don't like, uh, I just move on. And trust me, there's lots of people on Facebook that I disagree with, especially when it comes to politics. But for some reason, I just don't feel the need to get into a debate with them, uh, no matter how ignorant their opinions are. <laughs> Shut up! The next random thought I'm having is, I'm frustrated with Major League Baseball. I watch it every day and I still love going to the games. My problem is, is that unlike most of the professional sports leagues, baseball doesn't have a salary cap. Which means unless you root for the Dodgers or the Yankees, the team you root for is pretty much out of luck. There are a few exceptions. Every now and then you get the Braves or the Astros who happen to make it to the World Series. But if you're like me and you root for a small market team like the Kansas City Royals or the Colorado Rockies, you know on opening day you have no chance. I've rooted for the Kansas City Royals over 45 years. And in 2016, they finally broke through and won the World Series. After that, they completely dismantled the team because they couldn't afford to keep anybody. And so it's the same thing every year. They take their good players and they trade them for prospects. This year, they only had one All-Star, Andrew Vinatendi. A couple of days after the All-Star game, they traded him to who else? The Yankees. Same thing happens here in Colorado. At the beginning of the season, we know we have no chance of competing against an All-Star team named the Dodgers. But that's okay, I still love them, and I still watch every game the Rockies have. Like the other day, I was watching them getting their ass beat by the St. Louis Cardinals. And up to bat comes future Hall of Famer Albert Pujols. And he looks like he's somewhere in between 55 and 60 years old. And so I thought, surely we can get him out. But no, he hits a home run. And this is the way my mind works. As he's rounding the bases, I'm thinking, Albert Pujols. And then one thought led to the next, and I thought, uh, Albert Pujols. Albert Poo. Albert the Poo. I wonder if anybody's ever called him that. And then that made me think of Winnie the Poo. Remember that from when we were kids? And then I thought, Winnie the Pooh, I wonder how they came up with that. And then that made me think, I wonder what Winnie the Pooh would be like if it came out today. I'm thinking that Winnie would probably be a transgender with tattoos all over his, her face. Could be. I don't know, just a thought. You're smoking the pot, aren't you? And another random thought I have is about a documentary I watched the other night about Randy Rhodes. And I believe it was on Prime Video, and it was free. And I know it was free because I don't pay for movies on my TV. 
It's like we're already paying for Amazon Prime and Netflix and you want to charge me $4 to watch a movie from the 80s? No thanks. Yeah, cheap. So I see this free movie about Randy Rhodes and I'm like, yeah, I am down. I love Randy Rhodes. I've done paintings of him. I think he's awesome. Or was. And the sad thing about Randy Rhodes, besides the fact that he died, is that there's very little footage of him that I've ever seen. And there's not a ton of it in this documentary, but there is some. It's mostly of when he was with Quiet Riot, but the sound quality isn't great and the video footage is kind of grainy. But still, holy crap, you're getting to see Randy Rhodes play live. And so for the little bit that you do get to see, it's probably worth watching. So I'll give it a thumbs up. It wasn't great, but uh, you know, I understand. They told the story with what they had to work with, and I thought it was pretty good. And of course, we all know the ending, and it was very sad, but it also really pissed me off. And it was because I thought, you know, we've had two guitar legends taken from us unnecessarily. Dimebag Daryl and Randy Rhodes. And they'd both be here shredding their asses off today if it weren't for two freaking morons. The psycho that shot Dimebag, and whoever the idiot was that was flying the plane that killed Randy. But I know there's nothing we can do about it now, so I guess we just have to uh, remember Dime and uh, Randy Rhodes and enjoy their music. But I'm going to wrap things up now by talking about a band that I've really gotten into here lately. They're called Coheed and Cambria, and I mentioned them on one of the last episodes. And they've got a new album out that I just love. But I went back and listened to some of their older albums and I watched some concerts of them on YouTube. And the more I did, the more I thought, these guys are just amazing. Especially their singer, guitar player, Claudio Sanchez. This dude is just another one of those genius guys that's uh, on another level. And I know I've said this before, but some of their stuff is proggy like Rush with all these real complicated riffs and arrangements. But then they've got all this other stuff that's just kind of melodic and poppy. And I just love the way they mix it all together. So that's Coheed and Cambria, and you should definitely check them out. Now what nut would do that? Before I go, I wanted to say thanks to everybody who has ordered my prints and refrigerator magnets. If you haven't checked out my website yet, it's montycalvinart.com. I've got all kinds of cool rock and roll and sports paintings on there. And you can also feel free to message me if you'd like me to do a commission for you. I do family portraits, I do pets, I do rock stars, you name it. And as always, they make great gifts. I'm going to take you out now with one last song from Coheed and Cambria. It's called The Dark Side of Me, and it's off their CD, The Afterman. And it's actually a ballad, but this is probably my favorite Coheed song that they've ever done. And so enjoy it, and I will return soon with more fun and mayhem. But until then, this has been Monty saying take care, don't let anyone tell you what to like, unless it's me, and rock on. In those discouraging days, I always miss the mark. When we were comforting clothes, I would neglect to keep. of time repeats This moment now replaced with an empty wish to give I give, I gave I gave my everything
It's over.